Welcome to the Period Story Podcast, the podcast where we get behind some of the myths and misconceptions about periods. We chat with women about their period story, their first period, their journey ever since, and we open up a conversation to help break taboos and stigmas around menstruation. I'm your host, Lenise Brothers. I'm a yoga teacher and registered nutritionist specializing in women's health, hormones, and the menstrual cycle. I'm also the author of You Can Have a Better Period, the book Publishers Weekly calls an empowering debut, an informative, refreshing take on women's health. It's available from Amazon, Bookshop, and anywhere else you purchase books. I'm so excited for you to hear my conversation with Shakira Akabusi. Shakira is a pre and postnatal exercise specialist. She's also the founder of the Strong Like Mom Method and a women's health expert. On today's episode, we talk a lot about post and prenatal mental health, including Shakira's experience with prenatal anxiety and OCD and how she was able to move through this. This is such an interesting episode, and I can't wait for you to hear it. Hi, Shakira. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Let's get into the question that I ask all of my guests, which is talk about the story of your very first period. Yes, I remember this so well because I was actually really, uh, I think traumatized is probably too much of a word, but I was really scared about it and I knew about it you know I'd heard about it in school I had some friends who had my period um my family were generally quite open but I just remember really feeling scared about it and we were actually on holiday um in California so we used to live six months of the year there and it was in the summertime so we were there and everybody was meant to be going our family and family friends were meant to be going to a shopping day out or something in in the LA and I had this uh, such bad tummy cramps. And I remember just thinking, oh, I've got such a bad stomachache. I don't know what it is. And I went to the toilet and I saw that there was blood there. And I thought, oh, my period. And I didn't want to tell anyone. I just wanted to hide it. So I just went back to bed. And the whole day, I just kept saying to my mom, I've got a really bad stomachache. I've got a really bad stomachache. She's like, oh, gosh, I don't know what it is. Lie down, you know. And I stayed in bed and everybody else went to the to LA and went shopping. My mum stayed with me and it got to like the end of the day. She was like, Shakira, I think I'm going to have to take you to the doctor or the hospital because we live, we were English, but we were in America. It's not that easy with the healthcare system. So she was like, I think I'm going to have to figure something out and take you to a doctor. I don't know what's wrong with your stomach. And then I just whispered to her, I was like, period. And she was like, well, obviously this is what's going on. Okay. So now we know. And then, and then she was like, why, you know, why didn't you tell me? And I just, I just didn't want to talk about it. And I, I actually cannot, I've been thinking since we set this date in the diary of trying to pin down why I felt that way. And I, I really don't know why that was. That's really interesting that, you know, once your mom said, oh, well, obviously, you know, this is why, you know, you have, you've got the stomach aches because you're, um, you've got your period, but it's really interesting that your first instinct was to hide it, to mm. say like, you know, I don't want to tell anyone. Um, and then what about your kind of subsequent experiences? So, that was your very first period. Then, you know, going into the rest of your kind of yeah. early teens and teens. Do you know what? I also I have a memory of my second period. And my mum, I think still to this day, when I tell this story, my mum gets really sad because she, you know, and, I, and now that I'm a mum, I, I understand because, you know, you try to do so much good. And then the one thing that, <laughs> that you don't quite do right and it sticks in the memory. And so I, 
she feels bad. But I remember the second time we were back home and my family were having a dinner party and I would st- I'd come on my period. And again, I didn't want to tell anyone. And I found my mom and I was like, okay. And she gave me like this period pad and I put the period pad in. And I remember thinking, oh, am I going to have to wear this every day of my life? Because this is so uncomfortable. I don't like it. And I was like, please don't tell anyone. She had friends over for dinner. She was like, okay. And she went downstairs and she must have said at the dinner, I just started, you know, and then I came downstairs into the kitchen and everyone froze. And then they laughed because they must have been like, you know, for them, I understand their side of it. But for me, I knew in that instant she told it and I just felt ashamed and embarrassed. And, and again, that was awful, you know, and then through sort of those few years, the last, those years, because um, I was last year of primary school period, um, then like, you know, it, I remember again, like just wanting to hide it at school, you know, from the boys in school, like don't let them know I'm on my period. And then actually, as I got through my teenage years, I it became completely opposite. I went to a school um, that was really free thinking. It was a boarding school and people were on their periods all the time. And all of a sudden it just, just wasn't a problem. And now I work in the female health field. And again, I'm really relaxed and really open about it as we're having this conversation today. So it's, it's, I've completely gone the other way now. Yeah. And when when you first got your period, you knew it was your period. Um, had you had any education about uh, menstrual health, um, hormone health in school? Yes, we had we had had. And I, I actually don't remember exactly how they delivered the lesson, but I knew I have an older sister, so I knew what the period was. Um, and we, I remember we had had sex ed in school or something, so they told us have a period and then you're ready to have a baby. Um, and so I knew like the basics, but I didn't really understand what it really meant. Yeah, and going into that boarding school where you became like much more free and open about your period. What was your experience of your period itself like? Was it easy? Was it painful? Um, I always had quite intense cramps around my menstrual cycle. And actually now as an adult, I've, I've always had that. But now as an adult, it is so much worse. And actually, I think since I had my twins via cesarean, which is almost three years since then, my period pains have been so much more intense. Um, and I remember when I first heard you speak and you, who thinks that pain is a natural part of the period? My hand was straight up and I was like, definitely always. I just, I've never thought about it not being a painful experience. Um, so that's, that is something I've always really Um And does it, does a pain affect you, the way you kind of live your day-to-day life? Yeah, definitely, definitely. And I'm a really physically active person, but I, I'm also really aware of how my body feels and I know when I, you know, at different times in my cycle, when I will have really low energy or I just won't move as quickly or, you know, and I, I train in jujitsu three days a week. And I know when I'm on my, when I'm on my period and it gets to that time, I just have low energy. I can tell that a few days before I'm like, oh, I feel tired. And I just can't, I, and, and actually to the point where my brain doesn't fire as quickly. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get stuff done. And I just, and I, re, it feels similar to at times how I felt during pregnancy, you know, just, um, yes, yeah, so I definitely do you, because you're quite, you're quite sporty, um, and quite active, you know, given, you know, that's the nature of the work that you do. Yeah. Do you find that you adjust the way that you move your body depending on where you are in your menstrual cycle? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, what I think we have to be clear on is that women have been achieving 
sporting goals throughout their menstrual cycle, you know, throughout time. So I'm not trying to suggest that at certain times in your cycle, there's something you do, but I certainly notice a change and I tailor my exercise in that way. So I'm always, um, I, like I said, you know, I've, I try to stay really in tune with my body and I will do what it is directing. So mm. if it needs some rest, some downtime, then that's what I will invest in. Um, and yeah, I just, I just try to trust that my body will tell me what it needs. You yeah. Know? Yeah. And this, the kind of other layer of this is that you also have four kids. Yeah. <laughs> and I just, I, I, you know, looking at your Instagram, I just like, I just think you're amazing because <laughs> I, I have, I have one son and like, he just, I, he's nine. So he's a bit older and, mm. you know, the, the needs be, are a bit different. It's more like emotional now. Um. Um, but I do like talking about energy and how that changes throughout the menstrual cycle, then layering on having four children, how, you know, how do you do, you know, everything? How do you get things done? I know it's such a cliche question, but I genuinely am curious. Yeah. Do you know what? I honestly think people ask me a lot, how do you do everything with four kids? For me, number one was by far the hardest that that first experience was a massive shock to the system and I was tired and it wasn't as I had expected and you know it was the unknown I found it scary I had really high anxiety it was um that was something that I remember is a very challenging time very beautiful amazing experience but challenging in so many ways and actually having four is just I'd almost say like not it doesn't not that it gets easier but it's obviously chaotic. It's obviously there's a lot, it's busy. There's lots of noise, but the levels of stress or anxiety that I would have had around the first and the second have now. And so it's a much more, I'm having a much more positive experience of parenthood at this time than I was at that, at the initial, you know, and then yeah, it's, it's, you know, they all play with each other. And I think they're used to what I do. You know, we're much more in a routine of this is how our family's going to do something. Whereas that first time you're figuring out, oh, do I do this and still do that? Whereas now I know the times of the day where my children will be okay to, for me to, you know, do some work and they'll play by themselves or when I, they're going to need me to intervene and, you know, all that kind of, so you just get used to it. Um, but it's interesting as well now, cause I've got, so I have four, as you said, and I've got three boys and a girl. And when it comes to like, periods I'm really aware of that's that's something my daughter's going to have but I educate all my children so I talk to my boys about my period all the time my eldest is eight and four and then the twins are two and not so long ago the four-year-old was like he, he was like why have you got raspberry wee that's what he said to me I went to the toilet on my period and he's like why have you got raspberry wee I was like oh I have something called a period Ari is going to have a period this is what a period is this is look at this this is a period pad this is a tampon this is a... and I want them because I remember that being a big thing for me what are the boys gonna you know what are the boys gonna and um so I'm really keen to talk about to all my children about that you know that's super interesting because you know your your oldest he he could have your oldest is a boy right mm -hmm. yeah okay he could have classmates that have their period because, yeah. you know, I've talked to some women who gotten their period at eight and nine and it's just so young, but, yeah. you know, I think it's amazing that, you know, you're having these conversations with them, you know, you know, at all, all ages. And I think kids, 
they appreciate it when you just tell them the facts in a like really kind of straightforward, product, pragmatic way and just not make it a big deal. Yeah. And um, I definitely agree with that. And e- because even now in my field of work, like I work in women's health and I've been working in this field for over a decade. And it, but it took till I became a professional in this field for me to feel comfortable saying vagina, because for so long, you know, I remember as a kid, there were all different types of names. It was like, oh, my best friend would call it all sorts of different things, you know. And so I never, it, no one ever said the name vagina. It's like, oh, whereas now, like with my children, I will use the real word and I'll say uterine, vagina, urethra, whatever the, you know, the thing is. And just in a really casual way, like we don't need to always say the word vagina every day, like, but it just is what it is. And like you said, I think kids just respond well to that because then it's not a big deal, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And so going back to something that you mentioned earlier, you said that when you had your first, you had really bad anxiety and, you know, working in pre and postnatal health, um, a lot of, a big part of that is of course, physical health, but it's also, it's mental health. And there can be a bit of a, a I think a fear for women to talk about having mental health issues after they give birth. So in the postpartum, you know, for many reasons, maybe they're scared that their kid is going to get taken for them. Can you talk about what happened with you and how you were able to kind of get through it? Yeah, definitely. So I had postnatal anxiety. Uh, It sort of started in my pregnancy, just that lack of control and actually I say sort of now that I really think about it it definitely did because I remember I remember finding out I was pregnant and calling my GP and think and saying I'm pregnant just taking pregnancy because I'm pregnant and her response was okay that's great um call me back when you're 10 weeks pregnant because there's a really high chance of miscarriage before then and that was it and I got off the phone and I was so anxietal and all of a sudden I was researching everything you know um, what are signs of having a miscarriage you know became obsessed with it and that was kind of where the anxiety started and then that realization that like I can't control it you know every time did I feel a kick did I not how long for has it moved okay what if the cord's around its neck what if it's everything 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 and um again something that in my subsequent pregnancies became much easier for me to just accept what I cannot control um but then it really really kicked off after my son was born and I I often say you know I expected to love my children I was told, are you going to love your children more than anything? And I hoped that that is how I would feel. And I did, but I did not expect how protective I would feel over my children. Nothing in my life had ever prepared me for that moment where I'm literally like, I would, not only would I kill for you, I would die for you. I would die for you. You know, it is such a powerful feeling to feel that over for somebody else. And that spurred my anxiety because I felt such a huge responsibility. So I developed um, OCD and it was so extreme that, and I say this a lot, but it's the, the best example I can give is that I used to work in Brick Lane and I had to walk from Brick Lane to Liverpool Street Station, which is seven minutes. And it would take me over three hours because of the amount of tapping and counting I felt I had to do, like tap this spot, don't step over the crack. I looked, I would have appeared to an outsider as if I'd completely lost my mind. I was completely controlled by my OCD. It was taking me over four hours to get to bed, two hours downstairs, two and a half hours upstairs. It was it controlled everything. And it was draining. It was exhausting. Um, 
I never felt depressed, but it weighed heavy. And I eventually found a therapist who talked to me about the human brain. And he basically explained that the ability to worry is something that has kept humans alive. You know, we can perceive a danger and think, I'm not going to walk down that alley because it doesn't feel right. So that feeling of worry is a survival instinct. But nowadays we've got all these, you know, maybe a smell makes you worry or a thought makes you worry that isn't actually a threat, but it triggers that instinctive response. And as soon as I sort of saw that, it changed my perspective. I didn't see my anxiety as a weakness. I saw it as a strength, an instinct that I just wasn't able to control. That was, you know, and that in that moment, I was like, okay, I'm going to try to work on this. And what I had to learn, and this is kind of, you said at the beginning, I'm passionate about exercise. What exercise gives me that I also got from talk therapy and I also got from hypnotherapy is the ability to slow the chaotic thoughts. So still now, if my children are like, there's so much noise and I feel stressed, if I can go out for a walk or even just sit outside for five minutes and feel the sun on my face, it slows the chaotic thoughts and it's like depressurizing the valve, you know? And for me, I had to learn to differentiate between what is my instinct and what is anxiety because the two are so closely linked. And I was you know, if your child's sick, they will say to you, oh, they're probably fine, but trust your instincts. You're the mum, you know. And I was like, well, I'm full of anxiety. So I'm constantly stressed. I'm constantly anxious. So actually I don't know. And I had to learn to differentiate the two. And I did that with, as I said, talk therapy, hypnotherapy, and then exercise. And I still use that now. If I'm stressed, I feel overwhelmed. I go for a walk or I go outside. It allows me to slow the chaotic thoughts. And then I can think, okay, so let me, I see this thought here, is this anxiety? And then I process it. And then. I- so that's quite, that's something that has to be quite an active process for you, an active practice. It was, it's so yeah. much easier. I mean, it took me time. It took me years to get better. It took me years, but and, I, I, and it was a slow process. Now I'll still have ang- anxious thoughts that will come into my brain, but I can just really quickly be like, mm, no, it's anxious. And then it's, you know, so it's still a work, it's a work in progress, but it's quicker. Whereas initially it took a lot of effort and time where I'd have to do it. And I remember times where I felt, okay, I need to tap this five times. And I would sit there looking at the place where I felt I needed to tap. And I'd think, okay, breathe and think, what is the worry? And I would make myself slow down. It could take me 10 minutes before I'd be like, I'm not going to touch that today. And then I would leave it, but it took time. It, was, it sounds ridiculous, but it was a very real part of my life for a long time. Yeah, no, it doesn't sound ridiculous at all. I think you sharing this is really powerful because a lot of women do experience postnatal mental health issues and they're really afraid to talk about it. When yep. after I gave birth, I I had really bad anxiety as well. Um, and that kind of overprotectiveness you mentioned really kind of that came to the forefront, but also like a lot of um, uh, impulsive thoughts and like just <laughs> avoidance behavior um, where I would get this really like physical reaction. I, I remember once I was with my son, he was maybe about two months old and it was a rainy night and I was supposed to meet some of my NCT friends in this cafe. We were living in Chiswick at the time. So I had walked 
got on the bus and then walked over to this cafe and I could see them all in the window, but I just had such anxiety about going in. Um, I, I just stood out like, you know, like, you know, about like 20 meters away. I could see them, but they couldn't see me. And I just couldn't go in. I was just so anxious and I was so afraid to talk about it because I thought if I go to the doctor and I say, I say, I'm feeling like this, then is my son going to take, get taken away from me? Um, it was really just very, very, very hard. Yeah. And there's also, you know, because I, I, I hear that often that people are afraid that the child will be taken away. I didn't necessarily worry about that. I almost had the opposite experience where like I went and I asked for help. And no one needs to help me, you know, at the beginning. And that is also a really scary place to be because I'd grown up always thinking the doctors will have the answers or they'll have some tablet I can take. And, you know, whereas I'd be like, I'm, I'm struggling with anxiety or, or I, I would describe what I was experiencing and they would be like, well, and they did, it's, to be honest, I say about tablets, thinking about other things, but they were like, okay, you can take this antidepressant. I was like, I'm not, I'm not depressed. I'm not depressed. And I don't want an antidepressant. I want support or help figuring this out I don't just want to mask it I want to really deal with it you know um and yeah I I had to try so many different therapists I remember one therapist who tried like the tough love approach I remember him saying to me you can't honestly believe this is real you can't honestly think that if you tap that five times you know this bad thing isn't going to happen and I I was just like I was like I know what it sounds like but I absolutely do I absolutely do and you you know it was just, and that is also a scary place to be to feel like people don't understand what you're trying to say you know or as i said people viewing anxiety or depression as a weakness whereas to me now particularly i look back and i think if you are dealing with depression anxiety or any kind of mental health issue that you are managing it takes an incredible amount of strength to manage that on a daily basis that takes a lot of you know it and and again that was one of the things that eventually helped me you know that's how I I began to recognize that I could be resilient enough to get over it because I realized I've been resilient enough to live with it so I can get through it mm. it's I think it's really it's you know you telling the story of that doctor who tried the tough love approach I you know it's just I, I find that so disconcerting because you go to these healthcare professionals because you feel like they're going to help you and for someone to kind of not validate your experience it just you just think well you know what do you what are you here for yeah I actually had it very recently one of my children was really unwell and he'd been unwell for like four or five days and this temperature kept going come back going come back and this in this particular afternoon, he was really lethargic. Like I couldn't really wake him up. He had a really high temperature. I'd given him cowpaw, I'd broken nothing, wasn't working. So I called the doctor. I'd called them like three times that day. And eventually they were like, okay, you can bring him in. So I brought him in. And the doctor looked at him and she was like, Oh, yeah, you know, he's he seems not great, but he's okay. I can't see anything obviously wrong. And she was like, What do you want me to do? And I was like, Well, look, what I want to know is like if he goes downhill over the weekend this was a Friday if he goes down here over the weekend what do I do and I, she literally shouted at me she was like this is your anxiety and I remember thinking that's so it could be so so um what's the word that I'm looking for dangerous isn't the word but you know it's, it's really dangerous because 
I know that I'm I'm self-assured enough to know when I feel like it's my anxiety and when I feel, but there's plenty of people who wouldn't, and maybe, maybe even me, I don't know, but I know that you screaming at me right now, telling me this is my anxiety. That's the type of thing that makes women not want to speak out. Because mm. if you're constantly going to have it written on your folder, this woman has anxiety, you know, every time she calls, she's probably just anxious. It doesn't help. And actually like, it doesn't mean that all our other feelings are invalid. It doesn't mean that um, you know, that it, it doesn't mean that you're not a rational thinker. You can be a, such a rational thinker. And often it is really rational, very, you know, well, creative, rational, same, but, you know, very um, clear thinkers who will have something like it. It's not. And that's why this, this um, therapist talking to me about that, in, it being this instinct, and it's just an instinct that we're not able to control or that we need to learn to control. That's when I realized, okay, this is not something wrong. This mm. is something instinctive. I just need to be able to manage it, you know? Yeah. So if, if someone's listening to this and they know they need to reach out to a doctor or a healthcare professional to get support for, you know, it could be any sort of issue, but they're nervous about taking that first step. Do you have any advice for them? Like, what would you say to them to help them navigate that conversation with the doctor um, and to kind of get over any fears about moving forward? I I don't know if this will answer your question, but what I am thinking about is, um, is I think, I think the first thing for me when I finally was ready to get help was kind of what I've just been saying about, I needed to know, I needed to know that I could do it. I didn't believe I could do it. I thought this had control of me. I, I did not think that it would be possible for me to um, to to get through it. It was it was so controlling. And I think the first step was I I had to believe I could do it. And I've, I've spoken to so many people over social media who have messaged me about anxiety and like it always it comes from you know they always seem to come from a place of I, this I, I'm I'm completely lost. I, this has, this has control of me. I feel like I'm a slave to it. I can't see a way out so the first step would be recognizing that you have the strength to manage this and I think um you know as for approach approaching the conversation with a healthcare professional I don't know maybe we can approach the conversation in that way maybe we can approach the conversation in like I have recognized this in myself which takes an incredible amount of strength I have recognized this I want to be able to address and change this behavior and release myself from this control and I would like to speak to someone about this who's going to be able to help me put those steps in place you know mm. so it doesn't need to come from a place of weakness make sure that you are empowered in your own strength you know yourself and you are going to someone because you you want to take that step to recovery mm. and you just need to find someone you know to help you yeah and, and also I think recognizing that asking for help again it's just not a weakness I don't have a problem with that now I ask everyone for help like I will call my neighbor and I'll be like hey the twins today it's too much like can we do a play date because I need I need some time I need a cup of tea and a friend I will ask anyone for help that I can because I there's I am confident in the things that I can do but I also know there's many things that I can't do and actually when you are when you don't mind asking for help it's a really powerful because mm. 
they say it takes a village as a parent and it really does. Yeah, definitely. It really does take a village. That moment where you just think, I, I, and I say this with one child, you know, I don't know how many keep going just to be able to know that you can organize a play date and someone else (laughs) can help is amazing. Yeah. Just to switch gears a little bit. Um, you released a book last year called There's a Strong Like Mom Method. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of your passions is physical fitness. Can you talk a little bit about how you decided to focus on pre and postnatal um, fitness? And just talk about why it, you think it's important for women to keep fit and healthy during their pregnancies. Yep. So... I've always been really active. My dad was an Olympic athlete. Um, my mum was a personal trainer. She worked with athletes on my injury rehabilitation. And I was always really active and I loved it. And then I became pregnant. And I remember so many people, people who didn't have children and people who had children, but but probably even more so people who didn't have children, were saying to me, you know, oh, um, oh, well, now you're pregnant. You know, you're never going to run as fast. Oh, you'll ne- you'll never have a six pack again. Say goodbye to your six pack. Oh, you'll never want to be in a bikini. Or make sure you enjoy this summer because next summer, you know, you'll never have time to sleep. Everything, all the things I would never do again. And I really felt like they were saying, by the way, you can't be yourself. You do realize that now this is the end of all time and everything as you knew it is over. And so I was like, well, I just didn't really. That's not. My mum was a really great example. She's always been really fit and active. And I was just like, this is this isn't how I want to do motherhood. So I just started talking about that. And that's it. that was kind of the the birth of Strong Like Mum. I was already training people. And I remember reading the statistic that only 5.5% of fitness industry professionals were qualified pre and postnatal. And I remember thinking like, how? When so many women at some point in their life will be either pre or postnatal. And I'm sure, and I'm hoping that that statistic has now changed. But when so many people are at some point going to be pre and postnatal, how are we failing women in this way that we're not able to support them with their physical health? So that was when I began to specialize more into that field. And then I obviously learned on my jobs during my own pregnancies and also working with all the women that I've worked with over time. Um, And I feel as though, like to me, physical and mental health, they go hand in hand. And I know that for me, the opposite of what everyone told me, motherhood has been the most liberating, empowering experience. I have never felt more confident. I have never felt more driven in my, you know, other goals outside of parenting. I've never felt more content with who I am. It's been, it is, you know, there are many challenges, but it's just been this incredible, liberating experience. And I feel like everyone should. And sometimes, you know, it, whether you've got physical sports goals or whatever your goal is, business, friendship, lifestyle, your new relationship, whatever, if we know ourselves, like that's how I was able to get over my, um, my anxiety. That's how, you know, you ask me, how do you manage it? I know myself. I know when my body needs rest. I know when my body needs to go for a run. I, you know, to me, that's healthy living. And that was, that is kind of what fuels the pages of this book. So there are exercise, there is exercise advice in there because that's what I specialize in. But for me, exercise is just like a metaphor for how I live my life. And I just think, you know, just, yeah, doing something good for yourself, feeling confident and happy. And, and at, at the same time, you know, tapping into that instinct. At ex- the, the human body was built to move. We're not built to sit at a desk all day. 
and the body needs movement, you know, particularly for pre and postnatal, what the female body does through that whole time period of pregnancy and afterwards is just so amazing. And um, if we all had that knowledge, maybe we'd all feel more empowered in, and we wouldn't have this stupid messaging of like, by the way, after pregnancy, everything's over. It's just so completely wrong. Yeah, I think I, I remember this, like exactly what you said. People are so willing to share their bad stories. Like, you know, listen to my bad birth story or, you know, this is, you know, get your, get enough sleep now because it won't happen. Yes. You know, your sleep will be disrupted with a tiny little baby, you know, but it's just, they just want to tell you everything that will go wrong. Um, But what I think is really, really, I think empowering about what you do is you show, as you say, what show women pre and postnatal what their bodies are capable of and it's much more than they realize why do you think women underestimate what they're capable of physically especially during pregnancy i think in um speaking generally now like we are often bombarded with this messaging of needing to better ourselves you know it's always like you need this tablet to make you look younger you need this exercise equipment to make you feel stronger you and i think not that there's anything wrong with feeling you need to improve certain areas like we all have goals in all different areas of our life so that's that's not necessarily a problem but i don't think we're ever sold this message of um valuing you know valuing and respecting and celebrating where we are now mm. you know um yeah so i think i think I think I think that's something that that impacts women regularly because we're constantly given that messaging. Yeah. You see what I think really is really interesting. I remember this this um this woman, I think she was a crossfitter and she was there was this post on Instagram. It was a few years ago and she was lifting quite heavy and the she must have been I think she was like 7 months pregnant. And the comments were just like, this is dangerous. You know, you shouldn't be doing that. And what I think is really important for women to realize is that if they're already doing some sort of exercise before they get pregnant, they can continue to do it. Yeah. And, you know, you don't just have to put your, unless there's like a medical reason, you don't need to put your feet up your whole pregnancy Pregnancy is such a personal experience, which is partly what makes it so difficult um, as someone working in the space who wants to share, you know, a, a content around pre and postnatal because you you can only be general. Right? You can't be specific without really knowing some. Um, and that's why I kind of think just share the knowledge because then we can all feel empowered to make the decision for ourselves. As you said, you know, someone might be able to do whatever resist whatever exercise, weightlifting thing she was doing. That might be great. Other people, maybe that's worlds away from where they are. And not just the people, but like the same person on a different day. In my first pregnancy, I was bouncing around like happy as anything. I was teaching barbell classes, squatting, deadlifting, all that sort of stuff. Barbell on my shoulders, la, 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 great. The final pregnancy, which was twins, I didn't move a muscle until 24 weeks. I was, well, firstly sick, but also just exhausted and I remember at 24 weeks thinking I'm gonna go for a jog and I ran for like 10 seconds and I was like nope and I never ran again the whole pregnancy and you know and then even within the same pregnancy different days some days I was like oh this is great I'm gonna go for a jog and then the next day I was like 
oh, I just need to sit down for the next week because I'm just tired. And so you just, there is just no one way. There's no one way, you know, when we're talking about weightlifting, like you look at the, the female pelvis and just that alone, what it has to go through in pregnancy, the way that it tilts, the way that it moves, the ripple effect that that will have on our feet. You know, I talk a lot about the the connection between the feet and the jaw to the pelvic floor. So when you're in labor, you might have been told to relax your jaw because by relaxing your jaw, you relax the pelvic floor. When I had, had just had my twins, I realized I was clenching my jaw the whole time because my pelvic floor had almost gone into like shock after having a cesarean. So there's just so many scenarios which I understand is what makes it overwhelming but if you you know if you get the knowledge if you read my book and you get the knowledge (laughs) you know it's that that when we know the information then we can apply it to ourselves yeah what about in the postpartum because you know you talked about earlier when you you having four kids you have a rhythm now you know Oh, you know what to do. You know the time of day where you can do certain things. Um, say when you have your first kid, you just, you know, it can be challenging because you just don't know how to do this yet. What are some really practical ways that um, a, a mother of a, like a new newborn or like, you know, a young, a young baby can stay fit? Yeah. So the first thing I would say is that, um, in the, you talk about in that initial post, that initial period, or just any time in early parenthood. I, I guess it's when they get cleared. So like for exercise, yeah, yeah. Sure. yeah. So I think understanding that small, small successes are still successes. So any small amounts of movement you can do throughout the day are going to be really beneficial to your body, to your mind, um, and for me to my parenting. So it can be really small things. I would think I would say that there are some changes that happen in the body for example the the position of the pelvis that rectify themselves around six months postpartum so for that first six months i wouldn't put, don't put too much pressure on yourself to have to you know get back into doing a hit class or whatever whatever find movements that you enjoy i would look at poor rehab for everybody whether you've had a vaginal delivery or cesarean delivery that's really important. And I don't just mean Kegel exercises, which are really important. I mean, looking at the core as a whole. So for postnatal women, glute exercises, really important. That's going to help us realign the pelvis, but it helps to stabilize the whole core. So pelvic floor, um, the transverse abdominis, which is kind of the deepest of the abdominal layers and glute exercises. So something like the bridge, is fantastic because it works all of that in one. It's a wonder exercise. That one's great, you know? Um, So all of that. And then I would say uh, what I also count as the core is breathing. So in that, before you've been cleared for exercise, right in the beginning, working on breathing exercises would be one of the best things you could do with the time when you have it. Because if you, if you imagine, I would say this as well, if you imagine your, um, core as a fist. If your fist is already tight, then you can't use it. I can't pick anything up. I can't, I literally no function. Doesn't mean it's not strong. Doesn't mean it's, you know, not, but it cannot function. You have to release your fist first and then you can use it. And it's the exact same with our core. So learning to breathe, if you don't breathe right and you're not getting a proper deep breath, you're only ever going to have partial function, which means when you go on to do your squats, lunges, burpees, whatever you want to do in years down the line or months down the line, 
you're not going to have the same efficiency. You're not going to have that strong base. So number one, breathing. You can do that from day one. Then, like I said, core exercises, pelvic floor, transverse abdominis, glute exercises. Um, and then I would progress slowly to other resistance-based exercises. They're going to work on whole body posture. So upper back exercises that are going to help us keep nice and upright. Um, and then functional training, which I'm mm. huge on. So things that mimic every day, pushing, pulling, squatting. If you've got a resistance band, so many things you can do with a resistance band, tie it to a door handle, um, work on some rows. You know, there's just so much we can do um, with that. And is this is this the kind of stuff that you do in your classes? Yeah, yeah. I do the right classes. I do it myself. Yeah. Like, I um I I train and teach exactly the same. So all all of your classes, so you it's strong like mum, the mm-hmm. classes. And mm-hmm. are they focused on postnatal and prenatal? Pre and post. So I, okay. I do a monthly workshop at the moment in London, that's pre and postnatal. And then I work one on one with women prenatal postnatal some women who are years postpartum you know and um I'm just I'm at the moment started doing a menopause course and it's so fascinating because there's this crossover happening as women are having children later in life where the perimenopausal time is crossing over with the postnatal time and those two hormones are you know intermixing and it's just such a fascinating field of research so yeah yeah oh being postnatal and going through menopausal yeah yeah oh so where can people get in touch with you and what do you have coming up next oh thank you so much for asking so um i'm on instagram as shakira.akabusi um i'm on all my social media as that and you can find me at stronglikemum.com i am just about to film in the next few weeks my first postnatal plan which i'm really excited about and so it's kind of the book coming to life. You can find the book on Amazon and Waterstone, those kind of bookshops. And um, yeah, so th- those are those are kind of the main projects that I've got going on at the moment. But um, I would encourage anybody that if you have any questions, whether you're asking me or uh, another professional that you trust, ask your questions, like find your answer. Because the amount of people, I, I go running with a friend every week. I've been running with her for the last two years well, not every week, but whenever we can manage to run together. Her daughter is eight. And the other week she was like, oh yeah, I always have to wear a pad. I always leave. And I was like, how have we not had this conversation? You know what I do. And the amount of people that are just like, oh, I just thought that that was just the way that it is. And they don't, they don't even ask. They don't even ask. And it's something that, you know, she has to live with every day and she doesn't have to live that way. And um, so, you know, we're now working together, but I would just encourage everyone, if you have a question, ask, ask it, find your answer because the answer is out there. Yeah, it is amazing the number of things that we think that we have to live with, period pain, (laughs) leaks, and, you know, when, you know, there's a lot of things that you can do to change all of that. Yeah. What's what's the one thought that you want to leave listeners with? The one thought I would leave people with, I was asked this recently and I gave the same answer. And at that point it came out, no, I wasn't expecting to give this, but I actually do really believe it. I start my book by talking about this concept of mitochondrial Eve. I don't know if you've ever heard of that, mm-hmm. um, that phrase. Yeah. So mitochondrial Eve, for anybody who, who doesn't necessarily know, is um, scientists have discovered through research that if we travel back through history from a mother back to mother, back to mother, back to mother, back to mother, we would all end up at one 
woman than they call this woman mitochondrial Eve. So they've not found this actual fossil or bones, but this is the theory. And um, that we all, all human beings today have mitochondria in their system. So we all still today carry cells in our body from this one woman that can date back millennia. It's like fascinating. And I think about mitochondrial Eve and and the other people that would have been people, homo sapiens that would have been alive at the same time as mitochondrial Eve and all of these women that were giving birth to the future generation. And I think like, if those women could carry birth their babies without all the many options we have today, and that is not to discredit them as a mother who's had epidurals and cesareans and everything, I value so much all the medical support that we can have these days. But those, I, I think about mitochondrial Eve and women of that time, and I'm like, those women birthed the future millennia ago. We all still have cells in our body from that woman. That's incredibly powerful. That that is how powerful we are as women giving birth. And the concept that we have now tried to make out that pregnancy breaks your body or changes your body or you're weaker afterwards is just doesn't make sense to me when I consider that. Mm. And so I would. I think my last thought would just be to feel empowered as a mum because like you're not only creating the future, but like you have the power to create a version of yourself however you want to do that. And that is through your choices and you have the power to do that. And I would encourage people to ask for help, ask for ask your questions, find the knowledge, do the research, get the answers you need so that you can feel that that as well. Mm. I love that. Thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your story. Thank you for having me. For more inspiring conversations, head over to periodstorypod.com where we have so many more for you to peruse. If you want help with your menstrual or hormone health, email me on hello at eatlovemove.com to set up a free 30-minute hormone health review. If you like today's show, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. Tag us, come say hi, and send in your requests for who you'd like to see on the show on Instagram and Twitter on at periodstorypod or email us at hello at periodstorypod.com. I'm Lenise Brothers, and you've been listening to Period Story. Thank you so much for listening.